Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 is where we pick up our ongoing studies through this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and we pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 3 tonight, and we'll take it all the way through verse 4 of chapter 4. So let me read that portion of God's Word for us, and then I pray for the Lord's blessing, and we'll continue on. So listen uh, once again as the Lord uh, speaks to you through His Word. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that your mercy and grace has been shown to us in the Lord Jesus, in his sacrificial death on the cross, his victorious resurrection, and even as Paul calls us to do this night, cast our gaze upon him as we await his coming, as we long for his return. We ask that you would find us faithful as we want to live according to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I listened to an interview between a European athlete and an American journalist, and this European athlete had just won something here stateside in a competition. And along the way, in the course of the interview, this athlete remarked about a new person added to the team, this management team. And the athlete said, well, I like him a lot because he's not your typical American. And the American journalist, of course, was salivating at the opportunity to say, well, what is a typical American? And so responded by saying, well, can you be honest with us? Give us the the truth. Raw and uncut was the phrase. What do you think is a typical American? And the athlete was somewhat taken aback and quickly kind of backtracked, said, well, I didn't mean anything negative. Uh, The athlete simply said, a typical American is just loud and straightforward is the idea And if you've ever traveled around the world, some of you have, you'll notice that other cultures have stereotypes about citizens of America, that there are are typical traits that belong to an American citizen. But of course, you don't have to travel around the world to see the realities of different citizenship played out before your very eyes. In our own context, isn't it true that you find many different countries represented in our neighborhoods, and therefore you find many different people who are citizens of a different culture, or citizens of a different kingdom. And they might act different, they might look different, they might speak different. Simply said, they, they, they live different without intending to live different. They just are 
different. And the reason I tell you that is because along the way in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, there's this clear undercurrent. Sometimes it's, it's obvious and other times it's a little bit more subtle. But there's this clear undercurrent that Paul expects the Christians there at Philippi in this church that he helped to plant, that they would live as citizens of another kingdom. That therefore in Philippi, they're just going to be different and how they live, and how they talk, and the way in which they behave. You, you might remember all the way back to the end of chapter 1, where, where Paul started off his instruction to the Philippians. He had kind of talked about his autobiographical situation at that time in prison. He had offered a prayer, and then by verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, Only then let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we said weeks ago, if you remember, that that phrase, manner of life, it was a political word, it was a political term at the time that you could translate as something like, only then let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he was writing to Christians there in Philippi. In this Roman colony that was well known for, for boasting in their status as a colony of the imperial empire, the protection and security that it gave. And, and right from the outset, what Paul was saying is this thing and this one thing only should matter, that you live as citizens of Christ Jesus, worthy of his gospel. And so all of the subsequent instruction has been building a case for what that citizenship looks like. And we see that, you may have noticed, even in verse 20 of our passage tonight, uh, the phrase is there in plain, obvious clarity. But we, our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven. So all I want to do across our text tonight is bring out four realities of what it means, according to this passage, to live as a citizen of heaven. And then at the very end, we'll think about one more truth in the text that I do want us to feel in perhaps particular ways tonight. So, the first reality of citizens of heaven, according to our text, is that they learn from models. They learn from models of Jesus Christ. You look again at verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, you want to recognize, if you haven't been studying Philippians by this point, that these, these dual commands, it's like this double volley, join and keep, they both have a clear reference in the broader context of chapter 3. Because students, you want to remember that what Paul's been talking about for the previous 16 verses has been all about his life's pursuit, his one ambition here on earth. Do you remember what it is? that he would know the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. He says, whatever gain I can gather in this world, well, it's all rubbish compared to being found in Christ Jesus by faith. And that's why even last week we noticed, if you glance up to verse 14, he kind of using this language from the athletic world about running a race, and he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, in Christ Jesus. And so what he's saying is, join me in doing that. Keep your eyes on those who are doing that. So consider, do you have people in your life doing that? Overwhelming is their magnetism in their love for Jesus Christ. And this pronounced cherishing of the Savior they have this unusual devotion to the Redeemer. And Paul's saying, like, you want to pay attention 
to people like that. And even the phrase there about keep your eyes on, it speaks about this intense focus. So students, you can think about perhaps something that you may be studying for, an upcoming exam. You know, you're staring at your, your books, intently focused on uh, what you want to learn, what you want to know. And Paul's saying that kind of intentional focus we ought to have in Christian obedience in imitating those who model that life's cherished pursuit is in fact knowing the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Now for the last six months or so, Emily and I have almost weekly been in premarital counseling with various couples in our church. And one of the first conversations we often have with the bride-to-be and groom-to-be is we just try to talk about the model of marriage that marked the home in which they grew up. Because, of course, you might understand that sometimes the model of marriage has been a very healthy one, thus one worth imitating. Other times, the model of marriage has been not so healthy, and so the challenge that may belong to that young couple is they just want to reject everything outright from what they saw. Because you can have good models, you can have bad models. And Paul understands that to be true even in our life spiritually because he's just talked about, you know, you learn from these models of Christ, but notice the end of verse 18, he's going to warn us away from these that walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And we don't know exactly who these people are. It's probably best to take them as those false teachers, speaking about this false kind of Judaizer gospel that he warned about back in verse 2 of this chapter. He told them they're nothing more than dogs, they're evildoers, they're mutilators of the flesh. Uh, These people that are promoting a religion based on ritualistic performance and obedience to Old Testament law as though that is fundamentally necessary to be justified, to be declared righteous before God. And that phrase is something that's meant to strike you that, that such people that live as though they can merit God's favor based upon their own ritualistic religious performance. Paul says they're enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because clearly they don't trust in it. Clearly they don't think they need it. Because what the good news of the gospel is that the cross, of course, is central. But it's central because there's nothing we could ever do. There's nothing we are doing There's nothing we have done that could merit God's declaration of righteousness. So so Jesus needed to die on a cross. We needed a substitute. We needed provision. We needed righteousness, of course, given to us by faith. And if we wanted to know something more about these models we're not to follow, notice how verse 19 gives us four descriptions. He says, first of all, their end is destruction. Of course, anyone who treats the cross as unnecessary Anyone that has no interest in the salvation provided there, well, their life is always and only, isn't it? Going to be one of a road that leads to destruction. He says, secondly, their God is their belly. It's possible that Paul is talking about the sin of gluttony here. I think what's much better for us to understand in Paul's first century world is they often would speak about the belly, you know, the gut as something like the seat of emotions and feelings. Like we often talk about the heart as this kind of seat of spirituality and and inner devotion. And what he's speaking about here is is a group of people that not only have no interest in the historical 
reality of Christ's death on the cross, that feelings more, more than facts dictate their lives. He says, thirdly, notice, they glory in their shame. Maybe you know people like this outside of the Lord Jesus. They have no conviction of their sin whatsoever. They just parade their iniquity around as though it's something to be cherished and celebrated. And he says, fourthly, finally, you'll see at the end of the verse, their mind is set on earthly things. And before we go too far into thinking that we need to point the finger out there, remember that Paul's talking about people here that I think in context were those inside of the church, those that were trying to influence Christians inside of the church, perhaps even professing believers who actually live as enemies of Christ Jesus with their emotionalism and their earthly mindedness. Maybe even you sit in here tonight and need something of that sobering warning that to live through your emotions as though they're Lord of your life, to live with a heart fixed upon the earth, is to live as though you're an enemy of the cross. So Paul's saying, don't learn from those models, of course. I learn from the models of Christ. The second thing we see about citizens of heaven is they look to the return of Jesus Christ. Because you see the distinction, verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I came across a story this week of a social reformer in the 19th century that was well known in England. His, his name has kind of gone down in history as Lord Shaftesbury. And, and late in his life, he, he said something that ought, that ought to strike us in light of this passage. He said, I think I can sincerely say that for the last 40 years of my life, not a day has passed in which the thought of the Lord's return has not influenced my action that day. I wonder if you could say something like that. I, I certainly couldn't say something like that sincerely and honestly. But we, but we want to be able to say something like that sincerely and honestly. Because for Paul, in the passage here, principally, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? But we are looking forward to that coming return of the Lord Jesus. The enemies of, cross, of the cross of Christ, they, they, they set their minds on earthly things. But, but true citizens of heaven or heavenly-minded in every way. And he speaks about the power of Jesus. And I want you to know two qualities about the power of Jesus in verse 21. First, his power is transformational because you see he's going to return from heaven and he will transform, verse 21 says, our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now, some of you parents, I no doubt, can remember times when your children are little. And some of the kids, of course, are little enough in the room tonight. Or you might go to them after, after the service and you say, you know, show me your muscles. And they just put up their arms and, you know, they just grit and they show you your muscles because, you know, their body as a, as a young child, it seems indestructible. Of course, as the Lord tarries, years and years pass, decades and decades pass, you realize that no amount of diet and training can prevent what? That body from falling apart, that it's frail, that it's weak, but, but the glory Paul's rooting our attention in is that Jesus Christ's return means he's going to transform our body, transform it to be like his glorious body. There's this, there's this embodied hope that belongs to Christianity because, of course, what is now our bodies tonight as we are here that is, in, that is perishable, 
The Apostle Paul says in another one of his letters, the, the perishable body can't take on an imperishable kingdom. And the Lord knows that. So when he returns, he's going to take care of all of that. He's going to give us that imperishable body that we might enjoy his presence forever. So his power is transformational. And the reason it's transformational, because the end of verse 21 says it's also a universal. He says he's going to do this by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Citizens of heaven, they, they learn from models of Christ. They look to the coming of Christ. Thirdly, they labor for unity in Christ. Notice the conclusion in Paul's mind, at least from that portion of the passage, verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I wonder if you would agree with the statement that you can tell a lot about a person's love for Jesus by discerning what they think about the church. You can tell a lot about what a person thinks about the Savior by asking them what they think about his body, his bride. Do you notice again, verse 1, the, the words that Paul's using here to speak about the church at Philippi? He, he says he loves them, he longs for them. They're his joy, crown, and his beloved. Uh, have you ever uh, been in a place where you, you can sincerely say that about the church? That you love them, that you long for them, that they are something like a crown of joy and belovedness in your spiritual life. And what's important to note as the text continues is just because Paul says they're his crown, they're his joy, they're his beloved, it doesn't mean they're perfect. Because notice verse 2 and 3, he says, I entreat, Euodia entreats Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In verse 3, he calls on these companions, mysterious fellows that we don't know exactly who they are, Clement is mentioned, to join him in this work of laboring for unity between these two Ladies, and we know that they are clearly Christians. He's using the phrase at the end of verse 3 that their names are written in the book of life along with these other fellow workers in the gospel. And students, this is something that you need to learn early on and don't ever forget it when you think about the church. That the church of Jesus Christ is his bride, but this side of heaven, of course, it's imperfect, so don't be surprised. When eventually you go to a church and you sit in one right now that is imperfect. Satan will use that to try to get you out of the place where the gospel's preached. Uh, but, it, but it's possible to have people that are struggling for unity that you can still think of as, as your crown and joy. So Paul says, of course, living as citizens of heaven means laboring for that unity. You'll see, fourthly, finally, verse 4, it means living in the joy of Christ Jesus. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Now, if you thought of Philippians as something like an apostolic song, don't you think it would be true that the refrain, that the chorus would have to be something related to joy? So often is Paul's command that we rejoice in the Lord. Here he adds this word from what he said earlier, always. Remember, Paul's in prison. The Philippians, we know, are in extreme poverty. Well, we know, don't we, that Christianity the gospel of Christ, it doesn't promise a castle of comfort to us, but it, but it promises us sufficient reason 
to always and for everything be able to rejoice in Jesus. So these are four simple things, four simple realities of what it means to live as citizens of heaven here on earth. I want to mention one final thing as we close. It was some years ago that the evangelical titan named John Stott, he was this huge power in the late 20th century, or rightly so. He was writing a book on preaching at the end of his career. And along the way in one of the chapters, he speaks about his one wish for preachers at that time. And by that he meant, what is the one thing that I wish preachers today could recover that we seem to have lost. And here was his answer. He says, quote, I constantly find myself wishing that we preachers could learn to weep again. But either our tear springs have dried up or our tear ducts have become blocked. Everything seems to conspire together to make it impossible for us to cry over lost sinners who throng the broad road that leads to destruction. But I want to tell you here at the end of living worthy as citizens of heaven here on earth means we're often going to find ourselves on a trail of tears. And I tell you that because look again at verse 18. He's warning against these models we ought not to follow. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says more literally, but now I speak even weeping. Can you picture the apostle there only a few paragraphs before saying, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for the mutilators. But did you ever picture him tears falling down his face at the thought of these people who are enemies of Christ Jesus? No doubt some of you in the room know what it means to shed a tear over those who are lost and wandering. So as we go about laboring for unity, living in joy, looking for Christ's return and and learning from Christ-like models, uh, don't forget that part of that pursuit of the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ knows that uh, we treasure him to such a degree that there should be tears when you find people who don't. Uh, People who are even preaching a false gospel. Paul says they're worthy of tears. A trail of tears often haunts the path of citizens of heaven as they live here on earth. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would help us even this night to grow in the Spirit, to walk with the Spirit, that we might evermore grow in the Christ-likeness that you have called us to, even that holiness of which we are capable by your power. May we always live worthy as citizens of heaven here on earth as we look for the coming return of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.